Hi, and welcome to Archery Ops Podcast, brought to you by Gold Tip Arrows and Beastinger Stabilizers. On each episode, we talk to top experts in archery and bow hunting about what it takes to shoot better and hunt better, target after target, hunt after hunt, shot after shot. I'm your host, Tim Gillingham. Let's roll. Hey, everybody. This is the third episode of Audience Ops. It's a new uh, Gold Tip sponsored podcast, and we're uh, pleased to welcome uh, renowned guest uh, Michael Waddell. Oh, thank you, Tim, man. Glad to be on, man. I haven't really, you know, I just see you around trade shows, been introduced a couple times. I mean, I know T-Bone from shooting 3D and back in the day. And, uh, but, you know, we've had some casual conversations over the years and it's good to have you on board. And I think a lot of people, you know, recognize you, have, have seen you have a lot of success in the industry. And we just kind of wanted to bring you on and kind of hear your story to start with and then just kind of get some little tips and tricks from you. Oh, right on, man. I don't, I don't know how much I'll be able to, to share to help somebody along, but obviously I love to hunting and, and certainly, Tim, man, I've, I've always enjoyed catching up with you and uh, and you're right. I know T-Bone, you know, when he was on the archery trail and, and shooting from ASA to IBO, obviously, uh, you know, I probably know more about you than you know about me when it comes to your success. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, for me, I just always kind of been a student of, of everything, never claimed to to know it all, but, um, I just love bow hunting, love, love to talk, you know, the, the technical aspects of it. And obviously even with T-Bone, you know, y'all, y'all definitely, um, know each other better than probably you and I. And, um, and obviously that's one reason I've always just loved the friendship, uh, you know, with, with T-Bone is because for me, I'm not like an over technical guy, but when you do what y'all have done for many years, when you're trying to hit X's, you're trying to hit, you know these these small little circles on these targets. Obviously, you got to be precise. You got to have, you know, some unbelievable discipline, mentally and physically, to be able to hold and shoot right. And so, uh, for me, who's always just really liked the bow and arrow part of it, just just trying to to find success and kind of hit the I always laugh trying to hit the pizza box, so to speak, <laughs> the small pizza box. Small it's, pizza. For me, it's really cool. I love the technical conversations I've had with you at the ATA. You know, it's shot in different places, just kind of digging in deep because every day you're learning. And I've learned a lot just just listening to people like you and T-Bone on the technical aspects of shooting and from arrows to just flight of the arrow. To, it's just really cool to bounce ideas off. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to, to look at some of the people that will go out and spend a, a fortune bow hunting, but they won't spend two nickels to learn how to do it, you know, how to do it right. And it's really not that difficult. You know, it's... Usually, I you know I can. T- I always said that the the top uh, the top shooters in the game really don't coach, you know, and so you get a lot of you know misinformation out there. You get a lot of um, it's just really not that hard. I could take it by anybody and improve their shooting in two hundred percent in a couple of days. But uh, uh, that's been enough. Let's just kind of get down to the topic. Uh, you know, how did you? Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've been hunting since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, but, uh, you know, how'd you get your big break in the industry? It was, I think it was through Bill Jordan, right? Through Realtree or, I mean, I don't know how you, where'd you get your initial start from? It was, it was, it was through Realtree, but I guess, uh, you know, even broader, it was through competition turkey calling. And and that's one reason too, when it comes to like the archery world and competition, you know, it seems like in every, every discipline of of what you really love or what you kind of put. Uh, a lot of attention on it that you that you can focus on it's cool kind of a cool american story it's like you know you with archery and winning a bunch of championships t-bone you know i got friends that shoot competitively even even with rifles long distance and stuff and obviously a lot of people know their names and for me it was just kind of turkey competitions and that's where i just really fell in love with uh the competitive nature i shot a lot of tournaments but i i, I couldn't I couldn't hold a candle to the top shooter, so man, I was just there to to hang out and uh, and the fellowship. So when it comes to turkey calling, though, I did have some success and we won some contests, and um, that's where I met Bill Jordan, and I got a chance to start guiding turkey hunters mm-hmm. for Realtree. I lived about an hour, hour and a half from the Realtree offices, and uh, kind of one thing led to to another. And you're right, I'd love to hunt everything, but it was through. Um, competition and competing in turkey calling contests and having some success that I had a chance to show up as a literally a young 19 year old kid and have a chance to take some riders 
Well, it's pretty, yeah. so it's pretty obvious. Cool. Yeah, pretty obviously though, you have the charisma, and he recognized that, and you know, you're really good with people, really good with the audiences. I get this question a lot. How important are my stabilizers? Well, stabilizer is probably one of the most important things on my bow. Its job is to control the motion before, during, and after the shot. That helps us hold steady. It helps hold the bow still while the bow is loading and unloading from full draw to static. And it also controls the bow against our mistakes, so it makes it more forgiving. With B-Stinger, you get a lightweight, high modulus bar with vibration dampening built into the bar. This is very critical in terms of getting the most out of your stabilization system. If you want to learn more, check out bstinger.com. You know, it's kind of funny. I was in, I've been bow hunting for 40 years. I've never killed a turkey. <laughs> Isn't that really? Crazy? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I get that question all the time, Tim, like, man, what's your favorite thing to, to hunt? And I would say, you know, turkey and elk. Obviously, I love whitetail, but um, I just love that. Uh, I don't know. I like that social interaction. And it's, you know, obviously, I know you're a big elk hunter. And, um, you know, turkey's just a 20-pound version of a 700-pound elk, you know. And so, obviously, you know, turkeys, uh, it's, you know, a lot of people think of it as small game. But, you know, on sure. a hunting license, it's a big game animal. So, it's it's kind of a really social um they let you know where they're at and so i just loved it and so yeah somebody like you is as determined as you are I, um, i'm kind of glad you're not into it because there might not be a lot of turkeys left in some states because you would you would go crazy if you really got into it it's it's a fun deal and you can do it you can do it with a a lot of different people you know it's it's not it, it's not over technical to shoot a turkey it gets really technical to trick them and manipulate them within range i got lots of friends that yeah they love it and you know, it's, that's interesting. So, but yeah, we've watched you over the years on TV and it's pretty, uh, you know, exciting to watch and, and see all the opportunities and lots of young guys. I I'm sure have, have, uh, you know, developed their own personal dream based off of, you know, seeing guys like you on TV and experiencing, you know, all these, uh, different hunts i mean i know I've, I've got youtube on here all the time watching these guys and thinking how much work and effort goes into actually filming that hunt editing it and bringing it to youtube and it it's it's got to be a colossal amount of work i mean it, it really is obviously uh it, it it's it's a lot of fun but but it certainly is a lot of work and I'll, obviously all you know the people even behind the scenes our producers and, and like Cohen Stone, uh, a guy named Ryan Wakenick who helps us a lot. And we got, we use a lot of uh, different uh, cameramen across the country. And, you know, you become really good buddies and obviously you're, you're hunting buddies. But um, in the end, for, for us, man, we, we really enjoy just the fun of hunting, you know. And, and so obviously in that, you know, I, I'm no different than anybody else. It's sure. hard not to get caught up sometimes and looking for, you know uh, something big on the mountain or, or a sure. big nice scoring whitetail but we really when we start get kind of in that rut a little bit you know we we try to kind of stop and look around the campfire and the stories and the different people and personalities that's around and it just becomes uh that that's what becomes the adventure is is the time around camp and the friendships sure. you make the different levels of knowledge that different people have. You have some people that are just constantly making people laugh. You know, you got the guy that come to hunt, but in reality, he's sleeping late and making all the good breakfasts and, you know, making sure he's got the chili coming, coming and the fire going. So it's, uh, we, we try to focus on the fun of hunting. And, and obviously there's a lot of lanes and avenues that you see on YouTube, on outdoor channel, on, on different TV shows. I, I would like to think that, Hopefully, when people see you know episode of what we do, they will think, "Man, it, those guys would probably be a lot of fun to be around." You know, we don't claim to know it all. We just really want to have a good time. And obviously, you, you can tell that with, with somebody like T Bone. I mean, he's a big guy, and um, T Bone's not going to be the first at the top of the mountain. Never has, never will be. But holy cow, just to have him in camp, just to laugh and the, and the joke, and so uh, yeah, that's kind of what we've always focused on is the fun. I imagine you three are cut up. So, <laughs> oh man, we're we're half. All, uh, my wife calls us a bunch of man childs. You know, it's funny. I, you know, we we'll dig into the valleys of of, of some technicalities of hunting and 
we'll get excited. You know, it seems like every time I run into you, we'll get to talking about arrows and spines and I'm thirsting for knowledge because I'm still, I'm still learning. And, and obviously, you know, when you get to that top level of shooting, you know, I don't have a chance to be around guys like y'all all the time. So I'm, I'm wanting to, to learn. It's, it's kind of like being around, you know, um, you know, if you had a chance to talk to, you know, Ted Nugent or maybe, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen around guitars, well, yeah. you might play a guitar, but you you can get you, you get a chance to talk at a different level of technicality when you get around people that do it all the time. And so, uh, but but in at the heart of things, I, I'm always thinking, man, let, let, you know, I'm just wanting to laugh and have a good time. But then the serious part does come when you come to full draw or you're clicking the safety off. Obviously, you want to take that serious. But um, sure. I don't know. I've just learned, man, as you as you go through life, life's too short not to laugh and to enjoy the experiences. And I've also seen Tim, a lot of people have these extensive trophy rooms and man, they're lonely, you know, and I'm thinking, holy yeah. cow, man, there wouldn't be nothing worse than a dusty, lonely trophy room if All you right. ain't got friends to enjoy it with. And so uh, I've been lucky with a lot of friends to talk about these experiences and some of the animals are small and some of them are big, but the, always the, the relationships have been, you know, whatever. I was I was going to bring that up a little bit. It's getting harder and harder to recreate that, you know, family hunting atmosphere that, you know, we, that I grew up with, you know, we used to, right. when we were, we were broke. I mean, broke, broke. I remember dad taking a station wagon up to the Grays river. We come back with a table on top of it with a couple of <laughs> a couple mule deer, you know, and, and, but, you know, we pitch an old army tent and we'd all go out and hunt and, and yeah, it would, but that's harder to create because it's so much harder to get tags and so many more people hunting. It's there's so much lease land back east that you know I, I find yeah. it's harder to find places to hunt where families and groups of guys can get together. And I remember when I took my dad the last year he was alive uh, over in Nebraska. Oh, he was frustrating to be around. He was slower than. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Dad, you got to move over here, you know, and and. Uh, he ended up shooting a doe with that crossbow and I'd never seen him so happy. It was just crazy. But, uh, um, but that was a good experience for me. I wish I could have done a lot more. I was, you know, and, but, uh, anyway, let's get off. You know, we got a little bit, uh, off topic here. Let's, uh, get right to our uh, first topic. And we just kind of want to know, you know, I've always, uh, I go out to these 3d tournaments in the woods and stuff. And I always pitch this question to guys like, how in the world do you guys know where to put a stand? You know, I mean, I'm a Western bow hunter. I've lived in Alaska, Utah, Wyoming, you know, I'm a ridge runner. You know, that's what I do. You know, I love hunting from the top down, you know, and so whitetail hunting, you know, can be a little bit, uh, you know, a minefield for me. I don't know enough to hunt the wind, you know, you got to hunt the wind period, but, uh, um, some areas are easier than others, you know, Kansas, you know, something you get, you know, these crop lines and, you know, you know, you got tree lines along crops, but, you know, you get out some of these West Virginia, Virginia, probably some places down to How do you know where to put a stand? I mean, what, what's your, you know, what's funny, what's funny and, 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 you know, some, you know, diehard whitetail hunters would might disagree with this, but probably the most frustrating thing with whitetail hunting in general um, is because it is obviously mostly done in tree stands, you know, and especially you talk about those woods, like when you really talk about the West Virginia, those mountain valleys and those saddles and ridges, and you talk about Georgia and Alabama, and you're right, if you come from the West and you look and it's just a mountain of trees and pine trees and clear cuts, you're like, well, what rhyme or reason does a deer have to come through here if they're not coming to bait? You know, what's the natural feed? What's the natural browse? And what makes these deers do certain things? And I think at the end of it, the question is a lot of it instincts and certainly you have a lot of things that these deer feed on and habits, different areas that they, that they go through as uh, far as, you know, timber lines and different, you know, transitional changes in the forest and stuff. And a lot of it, you know, when you grow up hunting these areas, you get good to a certain area. Like if you grow up, say hunting Iowa, you'll get really instinctively good at hunting Iowa. But vice versa, if you grow up hunting the Southeast, say Georgia and Alabama, you'll get good at understanding natural uh opportunity that, that creates itself every year like in october when the white oak acres start to fall you'll know if you find a white oak acre now but if you look in that same forest there might be seven different varieties of acorns but you'll know that hey wait a minute when those white oak 
small, that's that's going to triumph all food. So that's where you're going to want to be. And then you get the states, like you said, that some a lot have more legalized baiting for whitetails. So that changes. And so even though a lot of people don't like baiting, there is a strategic way to go about, you know, baiting and hunting the bait, because obviously it becomes more of a, of a land field of danger for these big whitetail bucks to come in because they're looking for they're looking for uh, danger. You know, they, they know they're coming to a bait. So what does any deer or in this case, what does any predator do when he's coming to something he's going to eat? He's going to circle around and get the wind. So it, it makes it easier but it doesn't make it foolproof because you still have to be in a situation where that deer is going to approach to where you don't smell you coming in. Yeah. <laughs> you might be hunting a huge alfalfa field, you know, say in Northeast Montana. And all of a sudden you're like, Hey man, we're not going to hunt the mornings because we're going to blow all the deer out of the field. We'll wait till they go back. We'll get up in a high mountain ridge and we'll glass these deer and watch where they go off. So a white tail hunt becomes more similar to a, a mule deer hunt and and for me to have a chance to experience that as a you know kind of a redneck kid from georgia was just mind-boggling i couldn't think about getting up at daylight and sitting on a mountain looking for a whitetail and i it, it was so cool then you see him go back to bed mm. and strategically you kind of guess you know what trail he might use literally on a you know 150 acre alfalfa field um which most people in the south that they got 150 acres to hunt they're blessed. And I'm talking about this one field that this couple good buck will come out. So it becomes like a chess match versus Georgia. Um, a lot of times you are depending on a, on a lot of strategic luck. People hate to use the word luck, but whitetail is a lot of waiting, a lot of patience. Yeah. That's don't get smelled. So um, yeah. that's the good and bad of whitetail hunting. It's there's a lot of deer out there. There's a lot of opportunity. Every state has now got a really sustainable solid mature whitetail herd but um except utah we don't have any utah right on the idaho border those those river systems north in idaho and wyoming yeah all have whitetails so montana yeah, I, know, I know i've hunted up in idaho before and um man they got some really good whitetail hunting and it's fun because um i think that's what i liked about it being from the south it it becomes pretty exciting because the way the land lays you can see these deer coming out in these farm fields and these different agriculture and where they travel through those mountain valleys and so they they create a lot of pinch points and and places you can hunt them where you know like you said you you know you go to virginia or alabama mississippi it's just a vast array of woods and so yeah a lot i I tell you what we end up doing a lot of times tim you know you hear a lot of these whitetail people uh you know and I, i i'm one of them like here in georgia you're creating better situations to to help create a better opportunity to tag a whitetail you know you letting the, the woods be really thick and you'll take and you know like i got a a veiled mulching head and i'll go through there and make trails for the deer to walk so you kind of can manipulate the situation to your advantage some people kind of even frown on that but you know you can make food plots you can create you know oat fields and clover fields you you know we me and my dad just planted about I don't know, seven acres of standing corn that hopefully I'll have that we can bush hog down that gives some better opportunities for deer to come out. And, you know, my wife, my kids hunt. So um, I I think I tell there is a lot of work and money that goes into it. And I think I enjoy that, but I do enjoy the freedoms of the Western hunt because you kind of get out there and it's kind of all naturally man-made and you certainly can create some habitat that that helps you for elk and mule deer but it's i don't know it's it's a little bit more of a uh i don't know it feels a lot more adventurous you don't know what you might get into you know to you me might yeah three or four days into hunting or scouting until you find out what your pot potential is going to be and where you need to be and, and to me that's still kind of refreshing and exciting and i didn't grow up getting a chance to do that so so similar nature what you're talking about the whitetail that was been me for for like mule deer elk it's just like I don't know. You just feel it feels it's, it's a it's a crazy cool feeling to to be out in that big country looking for almost a needle in the haystack in some cases. Yeah, I think a lot of times it's like I like it's it's like going fishing with a guy that really knows what he's doing. I hate fishing. I mean, I, I like catching, yeah. you know, so I like going with somebody that uh, really knows their craft. And it's just crazy. Like you think about how how did this guy get to know all this? I um, Matt from from a grim reaper here he's like a big walleye fisherman and 
he, he told me a few things and, you know, and, but this guy's just a master at it, you know, and I don't have to, you know, kind of move on to the next subject. We're going to talk about, you know, you know, what type of stands do you like? You, you got ladder stands, you got hang-ons, you got climbers. You guys probably use a lot of climbers, you know, where you, we don't have straight trees where I hunt in Kansas. You dang sure ain't using a climber. Right. <laughs> but, right. uh, um, you know, ground blinds. I mean, I kind of like from what I've seen is that I've used personally the millennium style stands that have that cloth seat. That's probably the most comfortable for me, but, uh, Hunter Hogan's a guy that hunts with Levi. He does some filming and stuff and he swears by the tree saddle. You know, I, I hung a tree saddle up in a crooked tree in Kansas last year. I mean, I was so miserable. I finally got down and sat on the ground. But, yeah, I, dude. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of the same way, man. I've used a tree saddle. Matter of fact, years ago, it was like in the in the early 90s. I remember a friend of mine named Shane Carrier. We got a, a tree saddle, and um, I think it was Tro – I forget who made them, but um, they were made here in Georgia. And, and it was kind of cool because like a lot of the but, – but now I don't know if it's age or just the fact that you get to where you can hang – you hang so many lock-on stands and, and – uh, over the years, I bought so many, collected so many that when you drive somewhere, you know, you, you have those stands and you get pretty efficient at putting them up and taking them down, even quietly. Um, but I'm kind of like you. I'm, I'm not as tall as you, but I'm 6'2", you know, about 225 pounds. So I'm a pretty big old boy. And so it, I, I can't find the comfort. I don't I don't feel very stealthy outside of getting up in the tree. I, after that, I feel like Elmer Fudd, like a big, tall Elmer Fudd. And I'm like, like, you know, what do I do with my bow? And I'm trying to hang it and put it on a hanger. And and I feel like I'm just making so much racket. So inevitably, I, I've kind of, for myself, when I'm on a hunt, and let's just say we're all going to Iowa tomorrow, you drew a tag and I drew a tag. Yeah, to me, it's, it's hard to beat just some good climbing sticks, screwing steps, and some good lock-on stands. You, like I said, Millennial, there's a, Millennial makes a good one. There's a lot of good uh, yeah. stands out there that are lightweight. Some are aluminum, some are steel. Um, but with that said, you know, once you kind of get used to hanging them, you can get them up and down really simple and, and easy. And and I like the lock-ons for those situations because you might not know the land. You might be looking at maps and, and you know your apps on your phone you know like base map and different things of trying to figure out and, and we're, we're you're kind of getting an idea we might even have no trail cameras we're going off just hey man why don't you go check out this south end you might say hey man i'm gonna get in this pinch point down here farmer said they got beans on one side and they're standing corn i bet they'll travel through here i'll get there well, all right well i'll go hunt here so for me i like the lock-ons for my home stand like my home place i've got right at 600 acres that i hunt here in georgia and obviously I, I put in a bunch of food plots. My dad still comes and man, we enjoy that part of our fellowship of kind of getting all the stands and all the food plots and figuring out what's going to be the new hot spot for those areas, for my kids, my family, and even me, you know, I've, I've done quite a few of like the redneck blinds and then I've got a lot of the 20 foot ladder stands. And and what I like about that for guests is they're, they're pretty darn safe. Like, Right. You know, just talking about hard charging and you're talking about going at the same level. What I found is I can't expect to hang a, a, a lock on this 25 foot and then, you know, you're long legged. I'm pretty long legged. And so I'll end up having my step space far apart and I'll go put, you know, a partner or a friend that ain't hunting much and I'll go pick them up and they're sitting at the base of the tree like you freaking kidding me. That was like, <laughs> you know, I'm, an imp I'm not getting up in that stand. And, and for me, you know, I forgot, like, wait a minute, I didn't drop, you know, Tim Gillingham off. I I dropped a guy who's this never really bow hunted much and expected him to get 20 right. foot and gets back to your dad. I got some people terrified in a 10 foot ladder stand. Right. So being that I hunt with a lot of different people, I would say I, I do lend spots that I know are going to be traditionally good hot spots to the 20 foot ladder stands because anybody can get in them. I got a I got a six-year-old boy, Tim, that his favorite thing to do, and I, is he wants to ride around. We go, we go here in Georgia, and he wants to go climb up in the stands. You know, he'll he'll go climb up in those ladder stands, and he just thinks he's you know Rambo, like you know. And right. so, uh, even he can climb and get up in them. So, so I'm uh, like, I like that double ladder stand for myself, kind of like yeah, my, just 
Yeah. Well, my, my wife takes off for the gym. I go kitty corner to the King Bad Man. I mean, I just, I like the flop, you know? That's I, right. I'm a big That's dude. Right. I, I feel like I bump everything and I feel like, I feel like with those big stands like that, you know, you can, you can hide a little bit better, you know, especially, yeah. you know, it depends how they're set up. But yeah, I always feel like my buddy, Sean Greathouse from, from Hamsky, he, one year he killed 186 and then 194 inch buck all on public land in Kansas and then over in Colorado. And he told me he sat, he sits all day, you know, yeah. all day in a heater body suit. I'm like, dude, I just can't believe. Do you know what I would look like in a heater bodysuit 20 foot up in a tree? <laughs> Everything <laughs> in the world would pick me up. I guarantee you. But any like a grizzly bear up there. That story was kind of funny because he he literally never shot an arrow. He shot the same two deer with the same arrow and never shot a practice arrow between the two. And he gets over in this public piece of ground and you know, he goes in before daylight, puts a stand up. He wakes up, or he gets up daylight, and there's a guy sitting in a stand 40 yards from him. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so this that... guy, but, but this is probably what killed this deer for him. You know, it's kind of funny because this is maybe a, a public land hack, right? So he, this guy shoots a two-point mule deer, like, 9 o'clock. Then he made a bad shot, and he said, Sean said, he is down there for four hours looking around for this thing, and he said, he had no clue that I'm even there. And he said, he finally left about 3.30, 4 o'clock, and he said, I'd be damned, it wasn't 30 minutes, here come this 196. And like, he was just waiting for that guy to leave. And so that, yeah. that all day sit, not making any noise, and that patience, you know, paid off, and he killed just a slammer of a buck, but... That's uh, it does, man. Pa pa patience, patience might be one of the uh, best skills in hunting, and in, in really anything. I mean, even even the aggressive style of hunting that that I would think, like we've never hunted together, you know, I would think the way we would approach something is probably similar. I you wouldn't know it because I'm I like to have a good time, but I'm I'm kind of a hard charger. Now I will say I've gotten older. I just turned fifty this year, and I feel like I can still go up the mountain. But I have learned to do things a little smarter. But I would say I'm not the most patient. I you know when I find an opportunity, man, I feel like I just want to run down there and and get it. Like I I, just, yeah. I feel like I'm hunt, I feel like I'm hunting like I'm poaching sometimes, whether I'm on public or private. Like I like I got to get this and get out. You know, it's like a bit much impatient. <laughs> I'm not a great patient guy. Yeah. However, I got some dudes that I know that hunt private and public. They might not shoot a lot of animals, but they always kill big animals, and they have unbelievably patient. I don't know if they even have a pulse. I don't even think their heart beats. They can just sit there and just all day long. And I'm not that way. My mind is either something creative or there's a chore I need to do or I know I need to get back to the camp and I didn't get the mess hall set up and I forgot that I didn't, I, I can't remember if I brought enough vina sauces and soda crackers and my mind is charting. So I'm, I'm <laughs> like, okay, I catch myself, just can't relax. And and that's not, that's not good. So we, those we guys, call, are yeah, we, call, we call those guys indoor shooters. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Indoor. You're ready to go to the mountain, fire, fire 20 oh, more arrows. I just, yeah, I'm not wired for that. I, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I'm a ridge runner, you know, I just, and I find myself, you know, it's funny because sometimes, you know, you, you, you're always questioning yourself on an elk. Do you charge right in? You know, it's always about the wind. I remember one time I was up in Idaho public land. I bedded this bucket. They're just big bull in probably 330 bull with a bunch of cows. I had the I had the whole fresh scent lock suit to spray the hair gel, everything, right? <laughs> I sneak into like 200 yards, thermals are running up the hill, and I'm thinking, I'm just going to wait here. But then I you start it. thinking, how long am I going to wait? Because them thermals are going to change. I mean, I'm a, you know, and you start questioning everything you're doing. And I mean, I, I stripped down, sprayed, did all the stuff. This is about the last time I ever used one of them damn suits, but. Right. Uh, I sat there. I'm just, I feel like really confident. And all of a sudden a thunder bumper rolled in 
and that freaking wind just started rolling down the hill. I mean, they were gone like that. And I was like, really? Would yeah. I have been better off to just jam down, make a move? But the problem is I know. I'm, always, I'm always that guy that's running them out to the guy that they shot him at 10 yards as it ran right by him. Yeah. He, he got out of camp late, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's me. Dude, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. That's hundred percent me. I, I can't. I'll, I will have a pretty good game plan on a situation like that. You know, like you were thinking, and then, and the whole time, I start playing devil's advocate on, on my, you know, situation, like, because it's the same way. And 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 I will say that that is by far the most difficult, hardest thing. You know, whether it's public or private, especially if in the mountains, it's like the wind changes all the time, and and those thermals are always doing crazy things. And so that does become luck. I remember the first time I hunted in Wyoming in those big mountains, not not the rolling plain. Matter of fact, people ask me all the time, where's your favorite place to elk hunt? And I honestly like, obviously Arizona, I think is the best if you can get a tag. And people say, well, is that because they're big bulls? Well, yeah, that's because they're big bulls. But honestly, the habitat and those, those rolling hills and cedar flats, the wind's more, you know, consistent you get in those big mountains like you grew up hunting if you don't have the mentality like you have you can't be patient especially on elk you have to you might, literally might have 10 minutes to kill a bull yeah and, yeah i mean and, and then you can have one coming to a call you know me being a turkey caller and you're manipulating you know these elk these bull elk especially if they by themselves with these sexual cow calls well, man, I'm noticing those mountains. Man, those bulls respond good to calls. And I have a theory that I think that they so are trusting of their nose that they know that they're going to get a scent. It's going to it's gonna blow. And so I, I'm sure you've had it a million times, have a buddy cow calling behind you, and you are shaking, not because you're wondering what kind of bull, because you know that if he don't hurry up and get here and I can figure out what he is and take a shot, that he is going to smell me. Oh, and I had them just coming through the brush and the timber. And then all of a sudden, just it gets silent. And you're like, okay, quit bugling. What happened? All of a sudden, it just tears out of there like a lion got after him. And you realize you hit your puffer. Well, the wind's going oh, down. The yeah, it, it doesn't matter what animal you're hunting. The, the wind is king, you know, and elk yes. have just bigger noses, right? So, um, well, I guess we got a little, you know, you, that's one thing too. You were talking about patience, guys that'll go out West and, and put a tree stand up for elk and sit a wall while they're just going nuts. So I, I, I couldn't take that, but I would, I'd be down out of that stance so fast your head spin. But, um, one of the, one of the big questions on stand safety, you know, you talk about guys that are uncomfortable because, you know, we all know people that have fallen out of tree stands yeah. it's extremely, I know a lot of people that, you know, not a lot, but, you know, Jeff Hopkins, you know, every time you see him at yeah. a tournament and he's wearing shorts, you realize that, man, he took a bad dump, you know, he really messed himself up. Uh, you know, there's people that have been paralyzed for life, killed, you know, because of tree stands. You talk about those screw-in steps, and I, I'm terrified every time I go up one of the yeah. things. I think I'm going to slip. They are scary. And gut myself, you know. That's yep. what I, I mean, those it's hard not to think about that. So, I mean, I like, like the, the, the tree, the, the sticks and stuff, the millennium sticks and all, and just strap them to the tree. I mean, it's so much seems safer. It seems, you know, if something were to happen, you know, but, uh, I guess nowadays people are also using, I don't know, what do you guys call them? The climbing ropes or with prison? Uh, yeah, they call them lifelines. I think lifelines, yeah, yeah. you hook at the bottom of a tree. And come, you know, and you you going up, and you basically are hooked to basically a, a rope or cord the whole way up. And that way, if you were to slip and fall, which to be honest with you, that's the easiest to to not use. I think most everybody wants to use yeah. some type of safety harness. But if you think about it, the most dangerous part of the tree stand is getting in and getting out and climbing up the tree. You know, right. and I would say 90% of the time, unless, you know, uh, we all hunt tired because we are hard charging. When you find, you know, somebody like us that finally can get in a place to where they relaxed, well, what's the first thing we do? We, we get tired. I mean, you know, you either go, go, go. I always laugh. Talk about my dad, my, my dad, even 4th of July, he's out here and he can't even relax and just play with the grandkids in the pool. You know, he's out there working and looking at something in the pool house and trying to figure out why this one receptacle ain't working right. And, but when he finally does sit and still, 
and sat in a chair to relax, he's asleep. It's like he's like he finally had a little peace in his mind and went to sleep. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, you can fall asleep in a tree stand, especially if you've been hard charging. But those lifelines help a lot. And another thing too, you know, Tim, I think even in our conversation, some uh, our, our age and our fatherhood and and thinking about other people besides ourselves, because I I noticed with myself, I never thought about tree stand safety. I was kind of selfishly looking to to get in a place where I thought I had the best success. And so I was hunting with people like you that if we had to swing like monkeys from limb to limb to get 20 foot up, or if we had to sit on the, on a boulder, you know, looking for elk, we'd be right on the edge. If we fall, we wouldn't be hurt, probably be dead. Yeah. And so I think now that I've got five kids, I got a wife that likes to hunt. I'm taking people hunting. It, it, I catch myself getting in this fatherly, more mature mode of thinking like, man, you know, dang, you know, Nick Munt's going to be able to get in this stand. But, man, I don't think, you know, th this guest I got coming is going to be able to get in the stand. It's going to be uncomfortable. So I catch myself thinking all the time about safety for my kids. And then literally, you know, when when you look at your family and you realize how much you know, your, your family can depend on you as a man, then, then it becomes a little less selfish. You're thinking I do need to take care of myself because what would happen if I fail? And I had a great friend, um, a guy named Mike McKenzie, who is just an unbelievable hunter, Tim. He was a great guy. He, he actually was one of the first guy who kind of invented the, the camera arms that you, you ratchet in a tree to video whitetail hunts and different things. And, um, this guy was from South Carolina. He was a spider monkey, man. I, that dude would hang stands, run up and down trees, you know, with and without any safety equipment and just could get 20, 30 foot up. I would say most people in the South are hunting at a minimal of 20 foot. Uh, you start getting out into Kansas, the trees are smaller. And I found that, you know, you, you can get away a little lower. Um, but it seems like a tradition in the South. You just get kind of high. Well, man, he was in South Carolina hunting and he fell out of a stand and he died. It didn't just hurt him. It killed him. And so uh, that was a huge wake up call for me because Mike was one of those guys that just seemed invincible. And he seemed to be the, one of the most agile guys I'd ever seen uh, in a tree stand. And he had a safety vest on and they finally deemed after a little research, uh, you know, looking into it, investigation that he fell out getting down. Uh, that night and he had he was one of those guys for white to hunt and get up in the stand and he always had a judo point or some kind of a you know a practice head that he would he would just shoot like get up there and kind of feel good and stand he'd shoot a shot you know an arrow be stuck out there somewhere they found his little practice arrow stuck and um he didn't come on that night and he fell out getting down so uh just a sad deal and obviously somewhere between unbuckling his safety strap and getting down, he didn't have a lifeline. He somehow, you know, lost his equilibrium and fell out. Obviously, you know, don't know all the details of, of what you know, happened. Yeah, it only takes a second. I, I remember, I I can't remember vaguely, you know, when I was younger, I was, I was think I was bear hunting or something. And I remember shooting and getting so excited that it damn near just stepped right out of the stand. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I just like didn't even think I was just, and I've had a couple of close calls, you know, over the years. And it does, like you said, when you're single and you only got to an answer to yourself, it's different. You know, I, I took a pretty good spill mountain goat hunting. And you, you think back as you get older over the years, you know, the good Lord's got a plan for me because I dodged death a few times, you know. And like I said, I used to didn't hundred percent, man. I, it was just never thought of it. It's not like I didn't think of safety. I think I was just so wired to, to get what I want to do and move to the next yeah. thing. But now like, I always use an extra, you know, all the stands are come with a ratchet strap and I'll always go to, you know, a Lowe's Home Depot or, or somewhere and order a bunch of ratchet straps. And I'm always putting extra around even the ladder stands, even all the lock-ons. And, um, and like you said, it's so easy to not think ahead. And, and I tell you a huge problem in the South, you know, you're talking about Alabama and Georgia and a lot of these hunting clubs, so to speak. You don't run into this in public hunting ground, but you run into this in the South. Well, 
it's warm. Like right now, it's 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 going to be 95 today. It's it's sunny. It's pretty. And so even up into October, man, we have traditionally warm weather. Well, all summer these stands are sitting there, and they're in the same spot. It's going to be a good spot. So you know the, those those ratchet straps can uh, can dry rot. Yeah. And another thing can happen is obviously those trees. Our trees grow. I mean, pretty much our only crop is pine trees, and so the trees grow very well in certain regions and so you can break the weld you can break those ratchet straps but one of the most scary things that a lot of people will never think about you know finally september rolls around and you're getting ready to go hunting you want to go get in your favorite ladder stand and underneath that seat there's a big red you know red wasp has got a huge nest under there and you just go bebopping in there opening day you know <laughs> And all of a sudden you sit down and let me tell you something, when you got a, you know, a bunch of wasps getting on your butt, I can tell you very rarely you're going to be patient enough to take your time and get stung and crawl down. You're about going to come out. So I've got a ton of friends that have broke legs that have hurt themselves really bad over wasp nests and stuff. Really? And, and so, yeah, I always tell people, man, Hey, don't forget. I'm, it's almost like a, especially know, like, yeah, going before daylight. My biggest fear be honest with you, I went through, when I was in Alaska, I was in the Army, I went through our pre-ranger course, right? But I knew I was getting out, so I was like, but one of my main, my main considerations of not going to ranger school was I wouldn't get to wade around in no dang swamp with alligators and freaking snakes. I'm sorry. You know, guys, I, I am terrified of snakes. Like, how, how in the world do you avoid walking in the dark and not getting bit by a dang snake? I guess it's what you grow up around. And I, I've got some friends that grew up in the South that are still deathly afraid of snakes. Um, and, and it's funny you say that. So um, when when I, where I live, you know, most time we fly out of Atlanta, but used to in the early days uh, when I first started working at Realtree, when I was really young, we would always fly into Columbus, Georgia, which is the home of Fort Benning, the home of the Ranger. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my most fun and, and and man, what a what a prick I was to do this. But all the new from new rangers that come, I, I mean, I met some tough dudes, you know. Because obviously, to be a ranger, you got to be a tough dude, tough hombre, you know. And um, uh, and it's funny, I would have more. I'd, I'd be flying home in the Columbus, and they'd be flying in to go to Fort Benning, and uh, and I had so many Western guys like, hey, uh, hey, man, so uh, what's the snake situation down there in Fort Benning? <laughs> and I'm like, man, you got every snake that's poisonous in North America, you know, in the South. And, and yeah. man, and, uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, from water Morganson's to rattlesnakes to coral snakes, you name it, you know, copperheads. And, uh, and I had some really cool, interesting conversations with people. And then, uh, like the wolves, the grizzly bears, brown bears, never have a concern. I'll walk out the forest middle of the night, but you let a big old thought of a black widow, you know, getting in my, getting in my boot or something or, or crawling under a yeah something. i mean or get being in my sheets or sleeping bag no I, it's yeah, just yeah, fun. I, I, yeah snyder you know aaron snyder far yes yes they, they, these guys are all sleeping under these dang tarps and stuff and i'm like hey, no way i'm not sleeping without a net around my butt you know i'm, so. way, I'm way more afraid of that kind of thing of that thought than i am of of any man or, or, or like I said, a big bear or I don't know. I just feel like, yeah, I got, ten, I got 10 millimeter, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh -uh. All right. So, uh, every episode of, uh, arrow ops, we're going to go through a little tips and tricks section. We're going to call it uh, hammers hacks, I guess is what it's called. Uh, my nickname is the hammer in archery. We won't get into why that name is, but I just kind of adopted it, you know, because there's nothing a guy that uh, is doing it all right hates worse than getting beaten by a guy doing it all wrong. So um, one of the things that I have learned over the years is how the benefit of four-fletch patterns on on hunting arrows, and especially with fixed-blade broadheads. And, and where I learned this from was just experimentation. Uh, Grim Reaper is like a mile from my house, okay? And they were over here one day, and we just had this idea. We were going to determine what characteristics made a broadhead fly like a fill point, right? Because everybody, every broadhead flies like a fill point. Just ask, ask the manufacturer, right? 
But the fact of the matter is there in a single broadhead that flies like a pill. I found one or two in my day, but they are all mechanicals and very small. So I used to hunt Idaho. So this year, I remember distinctly that I was hunting Idaho. I was You had to shoot fixed blades, and I was shooting a typical standard what what this what the industry said was the very best thing for you know fixed blade broadheads and that was a four inch three fletch hard helical and every broad we have like eight different brands of broadheads um that we were shooting and at some point we were shooting about 80 yards or 90 at some point every single one of those planed off and hit in the dirt and I was just like, I could not get this set up the way I wanted it. And that's one of the reasons I hate fixed plates so bad, but uh, um, I just don't see any redeeming qualities, I guess. So um, I had some arrows in the shop here built up that I had shot ESPN great outdoor games with. They were 22 series. They were a little bit bigger diameter, but they had four-fletch, two-and-a-half-inch veins on them. And the reason I initially had four-fletch those were I could knock them upside down, right side up, you know, in the in the heat of the moment and I wouldn't have to worry about it. Well, that has some application to hunting too. If in the heat of the moment you knock a three flush upside down, you're gonna have a clearance issue. But when I switched to that four fletch arrow, it was such an epiphany. And I mean, when I say a remarkable difference, it was it went from every broadhead planing off into the dirt that I couldn't miss a six inch group like that. Okay, and I've seen this over the course of my, my archery career as I get to larger diameter shafts which have more surface area, just like a fixed blade broadhead, they have the same effect. If I go to a, like a blazer style vein, this is a Q2i Raptor. Um, if I go to something like this, you know, which is very popular and honestly, probably as good as any, you know, three or four inch uh, reflex in my, in my experience, but it kind of depends the distance you're shooting, how much blade surface area you have. Um, but I found that even with large diameter target arrows like my triple X's in 3D, the difference between three fletch and four fletch was absolutely remarkable. So it's one of the reasons we now currently have this four fletch two and a half inch vein or 2.75 vein from uh, Q2I that we factory four fletch with. If you're shooting fixed blade broadheads or you're shooting mechanical broadheads that have a lot of blade surface area or have any susceptibility to any play in the blaze or flutter, you're better off going a little bit more vein. Okay. I think this two and a half, this 2.75 will cover you on about any fixed blade broadhead. It actually, I think, will do a lot better job than you know a four-inch free fletch. You know, if I go into like finger shot arrows, which this is my my traditional, I go a little bit higher profile, but I still four fletch them because it's gonna it's gonna create a better air pocket, a better parachute on the back of that arrow to straighten that arrow back out and get the back of the arrow in line with the front because the front can't take off if the back is in line with it okay even on my target arrows i go to a lower profile like this is a 2.1 low profile i actually hunt with a vein very similar to that i've actually hunted with i hunted with this vein last year and one of the reasons i like it is if you look at it you got a very low side profile to the wind um and I should have glue in foreign mechanical so I can run a very small vein that's very quiet. But I still go for four fletch because although I may not be able to see the difference a lot with that micro diameter arrow with uh, a target point, I feel like it was so compelling in the, in the uh, fixed blade broadhead arena that it has to matter. Okay, and forgiveness is a very subtle thing. Forgiveness is basically defined by how far out do my bad shots hit. Okay. And that takes some 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 practice, okay? And you want to put the arrow in its worst form. That's why I was doing it at 90 yards. So go to your max distance. Um, fletch some arrow, three arrows up, four fletch, fletch three up, uh, three fletch. And I, I think you're going to see the same results. Um, over time, you're going to see that my so-so shots, you know, with a three fletch are going to hit further out. And my, my good shots are all going to go in the middle no matter what. So... Um, I hope that helps uh, do some experimentation. Uh, we do offer it factory fletched from Gold Tip. It's something that I finally talked them into, and I really recommend it. So that's Hammer's Hex. That's why I love surrounding myself with with a lot of different people. And and uh, and one thing 
that I will say somebody like Tim and, and T-Bone as that same quality. Um, I would consider myself a decent shot, but when you have a chance to uh, dial into their precision and their preciseness and knowing when they made a bad shot, now knowing that they made a bad shot might be a shot, but we're all still happy with that group. But there's been so much time and such attention to the details that, you know, pulling an arrow two inches or out of a softball is is a big deal. And so once you that discipline and muscle memory of shooting, you will know if that was you or your equipment. And so, uh, you know, some people might hear this, what Tim's talking is like, oh, man. And and to their probably, uh, you know, to their situation, they they might not be capable of understanding that difference. But I've also been out on range, say, shooting with Levi. And um, some of the things they say can be, frankly, come across as a little arrogant, but it's not. And the reason is because they know themselves, they know their abilities, and they know when they made a bad shot. You know, for me, if I'm shooting like this and I have one hit up there, well, that don't bother me. I might think I pulled a little bit, but I never think like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I had a little wobble in my broadhead. I just say, hey, that's that's still right there in the lungs. And so that's why listening to people that do it at this level can give you some unbelievable opportunity to to d- take a deep dive into because they're not lying it's not it's not made up it's not theoretical um i right. will brag tim the biggest thing i love about tim gillingham is the fact that he's straight shooter he does work with companies but he's the first to call those companies up that are partners and say hey this is crap or this is amazing and most people in the industry don't have that ability to be that forthright and secure with their ability and, and their tech savvy of being able to say, this is awesome. This is bad. This is where we need improving. And I think what happens is the hunting industry and sometimes our, our companies and manufacturers, we become a little two-faced and we're trying to be politically correct and we're trying to not push the envelope. We're not trying to offend hunters. You know, we either trying to make it too hard or too easy and so, therefore, sometimes the truth is not really known. And probably my my biggest relationship that I've really loved about Tim is we can talk about things. We can talk about FOC, weight of arrows. We talk about helical. We can talk about left turn, right turn. We can talk, you know, we can talk or, or, or left or right fletch. Or we can talk about four or three. And he's going to give you a straight up opinion, not on industry specs or what's hot or what should be sold about his experience on winning championships and killing animals. And and I find that really contagious and I really like it because uh, I find myself very much that way. And sometimes I, I feel so opinionated that I feel like I can piss people off, but but I'm really not. This is just based on experience. And uh, I don't have the ability to shoot at that level of Tim and Levi and T-Bone. I strive to. Um, but honestly, I probably am not disciplined enough to put the time in that they did. So therefore, I can put the time into listening and picking up on these small detailed tech stuff that can help. And so what happens is for me, it's not going to help me win the ASA championship because I probably won't even qualify to shoot with them. But what it will help me is to kill an elk at 85 yards and to take a group that I'm shooting like this, it's 85 yards that I think is pretty good, and to take it to this. And that might not seem like a lot. That starts paying off. And if you're trying to put some meat with your biscuits, listen to these. Yeah. There's a remarkable difference between the groups you're shooting in the backyard and what you do when you're jangled and you're standing on a 20 degree side hill with a 10 mile an hour crosswind too. So with a fixed blade broadhead, the reason I shoot fixed blades with the best of them, but you start backing that distance up and, and and I kind of quite like the fixed blades and the, dropway rest to the same thing you know in target archery you know the guys that shoot blades don't trust dropways the guys that shoot fixed blades don't trust mechanicals and you know it it's just i've seen the devastation of the wound channels and stuff and i'm watching uh the hunting public the other day and i'm thinking man if you would just shot that thing with a big old rear claw mechanical you would be looking for it you know yeah but i'd encourage guys to go to you know gold tips website youtube channel we've got a lot of stuff on there a tuning series, uh, broadhead alignment. I go through building, say, the Pierce 
hunting arrow, building the pierce target arrow. You know, I, I go through, there's tips in there on, on alignment. I mean, I remember running into guys that just screw their broadheads on and, and they don't do anything else. And well, that one wobbles and that one doesn't. And they're blaming the broadhead when it's not that. Okay. It's, 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 and, and I'll do that on another, I guess, uh, you know, hammers hack. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit, you know, quickly about that, but there's lots of information to be learned. I've been in it 40 years. I'm still learning. I'm yes. still refining my knowledge. I'm still refining, you know, and, and eventually I want to get to where I can share this with the general public and leave it with the general public. And, and uh, I grew up with a mother that always told me every time I said, I can't, she said, can't die in the army. Get your butt out there and do it. So that's I right. Think, you know, when I do launch that thing, I'm going to call it, I can archery. So I love that. You know, I love that. And I, you know, Tim, what I tell people, because I, I'm more mannered like you and giving my opinion. And the only reason I feel like I'm more vocal now is because, man, it's all I've ever did and I love. And I'm like you. I'll never say I know it all. Yeah. But my experiences of success and failure speak for themselves. And so, like you were talking about your four pledge. Well, that wasn't based on, man, I'm going to start selling four-fledged arrows. That was based on what you saw in your experience of saying, this is why I like it. I can say the same. I'm a big mechanical broadhead shooter. I have killed a lot of game with fixed blades, um, and, and I definitely think they're, should I say, have their place? I, I don't necessarily think they necessarily do that outweigh the place that any mechanical, uh, that, that most mechanicals that, that I would you know, say are good ones would, would, uh, you know, a fix would be better than, um, you know, po possibly, you know, we can get into some high level hack stuff like, you know, the, yeah. you know, Kate Buffalo, but inevitably, inevitably what I will say is take advantage of our selfishness. And what I mean by that, if anyone thinks that any of these people that kill a lot of animals are not selfish to the fact that when they leave their family and spend seven to 10, 10 you know, days on the mountain, if you don't think they're really wanting to dish out death, and when they traditionally every year do, you trust them. And right. so what happens is a lot of the internet sensations, I'm not saying they don't have success, but they're not killing in the masses of what selfish hunters maybe like me and you do i mean and i'm not trying to sound facetious or mean or game hoggy but there's a lot of animals that die at those hands and so uh it's not it doesn't make anybody any better it's just yeah. the fact that selfishly we're going to what makes us the best successful and so if you right. find what those people are using it's gonna work for you because they've already had the failures they've already had tons of success so therefore the proof as t-bone says becomes in the pudding the proof's in the pudding right you know yeah and i you know i'm, I'm able to you know to i run the national shooting staff for gold tips so i'm i'm you know i'd say probably 90 95 of asa shooters 3d shooters are hunters they're serious hunters okay they're, and you never yeah. see this heavy arrow heavy foc like uh thing being uh talked about in that crowd of experience right um I'm not saying this a bad thing. I mean, I mean, you can if you can shoot a heavy arrow and keep your speed up. Number one problem I have as an archer is how far it is, right? And speed helps that. Same way it does in 3D a little bit. And then kind of depends what you're doing. You know, if you're sitting there and you know exactly how far it is every time, it probably doesn't matter a heck of a lot. So, but uh, you know, there's there's lots of different ways to get an arrow in the X ring, and a lot of different arrows. You know, get an, a ways to get an arrow through the chest cavity. But uh, we can all be better. Um, we just gotta. You know, you can't teach desire to anybody. Okay. No, no, you can't. can't. If the person doesn't want it, stop telling them. But I tell people I will fight to the death on something I know. I'll give a little ground on something that's subjective, but I will fight to the death if I absolutely know it. And you will know that I know that I believe in what I'm saying. And I, I don't like fake people and and some people love me or hate me because of the way I, you know, way I am. But I, I the older you get, the less you care, right? <laughs> well, I personally love it because there's less of those type people, Tim, anymore. And, um, and you know, it's funny because obviously I, I love to bow hunt. And, and, you know, anytime you start dialing into arrows and 
kinetic energy and you know foc and stuff you know it it, it, it opens up this huge you know i wouldn't say controversial but you know opinion and i love opinion because with opinions that's how we learn and and yeah. then you know like like we both can go experiment in the south you know one of the cool things you, you got an opportunity like man my deer i just realized through a lot of inventory i got so many deer like i'm overpopulated so this year is going to be a fun year for me and my kids to kill a lot of d does with a bow and arrow so in those situations uh Again, I'll get criticized for it, but you know, you can guinea pig some different things and have fun. I, I right. like to go outside of a comfort zone. And so as you was talking about arrows, for me, when I got into bow hunting in around 12, a lot of my equipment had not to do with what I necessarily wanted. I was a broke redneck kid. You buy the cheapest gear. You know, right. you don't have the best bow. You don't want to have the best product. You know, you don't know if it's a heavy air or light air. You just know it's one you can afford. And so when you find success, but sure. then you experience some failure, you start saving up and building your knowledge of what you know, and then you're around different people in the industry. And so half of the time, some of these people that's given these almost hate hated type of, you're an idiot if you do these things, I start looking at their resume, and they killed a couple of pigs under a feeder in Texas, and that's yeah. all they got. And right. I'm like, okay, good for you. I'm glad it worked for that, but, you know, we're going to be in the mountains. We, we might have one shot at 76 yards. Hopefully we get a range finder on them and get our arc and understand our elevation drop. Um, but you know, we're, we're not machines. There's going to be a crosswind of, of 30 mile an hour possibly. And so I never forget the first time I was first time I went mule deer hunting out in Colorado. It was in the plains and um, it was cornfields and milo fields and, these these big coolies, it wasn't big mountains. It was just these big open ranges. Well, the wind was blowing. I like a I figured they should have been a tornado warning. And I remember I was shooting at 35 yards and it was blowing my arrow, a fixed blade broad, broadhead with five inch fletch, three fletch. And Tim, I mean, it's not surprising. I was missing the whole target at 35 yards. Yeah. And and I'm like, oh my God. I come out here prepared to shoot 70 and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can hit one at 20. And so that's when I realized like, man, I need to slim this down a little bit. I, I got too much. I got too much on the front, possibly too much in the back. And all I know is this era is blowing. Yep. This is, this is like playing craps in Vegas to hit a deer. And right. um, we could go for. So I learned a lot. Yeah, we could go for days on that subject. You have, and and I and I'll add. I know we're getting toward the end of, of this, you know, chat just uh, on the podcast. But what I have learned, um, what's made me so much better, I feel like as a hunter, as an archer, e even even a rifle hunter, just well-rounded sportsman, is taking advantage of people that dedicate their life to a certain area. And so, what I will say when it comes to bow hunting. You can find a, a, a high-level person that shoots in the ASA, IBO, that wins a lot, even the indoor guys. That's good. Didn't always go over and relate to hunting. But when you find somebody like you, I use Levi Morgan as an example. To me, even Jackie Cottle, I remember kind of an old-school old kind of guy. When, when you find a guy that has a precision, detail, and ability to shoot at that level to win world championships, and you add the resume of dishing out death, you really don't have to venture out a whole lot more into trying to grab some knowledge. So for me, I have been able to gain so much experience and um, completely learn so much from not just the tournament archery shooters, but those that have done both that are efficient hunters and killers along with winning championships. I have met some on the other side that haven't dished a lot of death and they, they can't put the two together. You know, right. they can't, yeah, seen that they, a bit. yeah, they can't take the quick shot because they're used to the discipline of the, of the long, you know, pull through the shot. But, you know, you know, you get somebody like you who, who knows how to pull through the shoot, shot and shoot tension, but also knows that, Hey, I gotta be, I'm only going to have a sack at this deer's coming through this gap. I got him in between the hickory and a sweet gum. I need to let him have it. And, um, and I noticed that with T-Bone, like T-Bone was the world's best shot. But man, I'm telling you, those first few years, I felt like a, 
the deer Nazi on T-Bone, like, T-Bone, you get, you, what are you doing? Take the shot. Like, well, I just didn't <laughs> Like, he stood in the opening for 20 seconds. And I, <laughs> and I was looking, and, and there was some twigs, and he, he, it took him a while to take that meticulous, detailed approach to a target, to studying it, to trying to figure the range. And obviously, you can't afford that. So you get some guys, and I'm sure you know them, that have not turned that curve. But when you get somebody that's dish death from big game to small game to long distance to windy conditions to altitude changes to to shooting in the thick, humid south, that's another thing I learned. Like I said, I know we're going forever to, to going out to the high country and elevation. I noticed my bow was shooting about an inch or two hot, hotter. That I'm like, what's what's going on? And somebody told us, like an archery guy said, man, you shoot a little hot. It's just slider. Like, oh, man, I... This ain't Sir Isaac Newton stuff. I feel like man, I'm telling you, dude. It's you're shooting in a different environment. You're higher altitude. You're this and that. And yeah, I turned a lot of that to be true. And like you said, you learn so much, and you always learn. And so I think podcasts like this that people will dig into to listen and to the these these hammer hacks along with these guests who had experience. I just think there's a lot to learn. It, it makes me want to listen to everyone because. Man, I'm selfishly don't want to fail. I, I don't want to fail. I'm a very selfish person when it comes to my game and when I take a shot. And if I have something that gives me a little advantage, whether it's four flitch, a better mechanical head, or a better fixed blade, or a little more kinetic energy, or a little lighter that helps me from a string jump, I want to digest it all. Listen to everyone and cultivate your style that fits your personal mental and just, physical yeah. attributes and you and you you'll get unbelievably uh success with that in my opinion let's expand your knowledge base well thanks for having you mike i appreciate it. it's it been a good conversation i'm sure we could go for hours it's uh it's not it's not know-it-all it's excitement and security of sharing what we know man i, I yeah. freaking love it. well i appreciate it, everybody uh we're going to close out this third episode of uh arrow ops you know brought to you by gold tip uh thanks again michael for coming on board and i i think if you guys will you know subscribe to this podcast you're going to pick up a lot of tips and tricks that are going to help you in your bow hunting and archery pursuits hey before you go there's a great way to get even more info and tips follow this podcast and check out gold tip on facebook instagram and youtube thanks for listening and as always start tough and stay true